In this episode, Nathan Long from Hargreaves Lansdowne talks about financial resilience and what it means for ordinary people, not just the 8% or so of the population to whom the industry provides personalised advice. We also talk about financial engagement. Nathan gives an excellent perspective on defaults on non-workplace pensions and on drawdown pathways. spend the whole podcast talking about world tour cycling <laughs> the main problem with that is other people do it far better than we could yeah. <laughs> and also the listeners here both of them uh, came here for financial services not cycling so i'm not sure that would work i know i know oh never mind we'll talk about financial services instead then yeah so i was really interested in the resilience barometer work that harvey's lands now done. so i want to start with that and i also want to just kind of expand the conversation out into various other aspects of financial engagement and some of the work you've done in the past and stuff that's going on now yeah just feels really topical and actually i keep finding myself having the same kind of conversations with different people in different contexts about Mm. how do we strike the balance with engagement and information and guidance and that kind of stuff so it feels like a really live topic but let's start with the resilience barometer because that's been a big piece of work for hargreaves lansdowne so just to talk us through it what have you done so I guess that we had this aspiration to try and take some of the knowledge and information that we have amongst our financial advice part of our business and try and democratise that to people who might otherwise not want to pay for financial advice or just not be able to afford financial advice and to try and kind of deliver some of those tips to consumers of information on our, on our website. So we kind of built that out around five key topics. So that was controlling your debt, looking after your family, so protecting your family, saving for a rainy day, planning for later life, and investing to make more of your money. And the thought process from from us was that if you went to speak to one of our advisors, those are kind of the five key areas that they would look to address. So if we if we could kind of create content around bringing that to people's awareness, then that, that might be quite useful. And my background, one of the roles I used to do was as a financial advisor. And I, and I think what I tended to find was that people would grasp individual elements quite quickly, but actually trying to understand how that fits holistically together is, is far more challenging because lots of people haven't had to sort of think through that before. So that's, that's I guess, kind of where a lot of our initial thinking came from. So we created, you know, set of information and financial education around those five topics. And then we started to look into this in a little bit more detail. We explored some of these, the research that's available on each of these different pillars. And I think what became quite apparent to me is that there's there's some great work on all of those individual pillars, mm-hmm. but there's not really anything that sort of tends to, to sort of look at how those are all glued together. So you tend to find that there's some great work on whether people are saving enough for retirement, but it's kind of almost done in isolation and sort of with no awareness of whether people are building up a cash emergency fund or whether they've got problem debt or anything like that. So it's kind of trying to make sure that we can look across all of those was kind of where we thought there was a gap from a research perspective. And in doing that research, we were drawn to the findings of the Financial Resilience Task Force, which actually one of their recommendations was it would be great if there could be an index built which measured financial resilience. So we we picked that up. We took it away from just being kind of looking at short-term resilience to more aligned to our model, which looks at both the short and the long-term resilience of households. 
And then we partnered with Oxford Economics to help us build out something which would be able to, to look at households in, the, in Great Britain overall and look at their, their financial resilience and see if you can almost score that across a number of different indicators. Which you did. And I want to come back to, to the stuff you started off there. You talked about how the individuals use it. But we've got a score, 57.7. It's like fantastic. <laughs> okay, it's quite reductive. You know, is that good? You know, so, but I guess it's, it's comparative, isn't it? So you just use it over time to track movements, right? Yeah, exactly. And I think that's the key. You know, we're, we're very aware that, I guess, of two things. Firstly, that this is kind of almost the line in the sand. And the interesting thing is how people's resilience changes over time with various macroeconomic impacts on that, but also in, in, with various policy changes and, and whether we can sort of tease that out from the barometer to help us see that, that what's happening. And I guess, you know, at this stage, we haven't surfaced the ability for people to go and work out their own financial resilience score, but that is something which is on the radar and we, we may well do in, in due course. But yeah, I think to your point, it's just, let's draw a line in the sand, let's make sure we can measure it and then work out how it changes over time. And I was really interested to see that you're already projecting that because of inflation and because of the economic situation, you anticipate that it's going to fall this year, that the number's going to look worse at the end of this year than it does today. Yeah, that's right. So the underpinning of the of the barometer is done from a couple of big ONS data sets. And actually, we've pulled in the data from the FCA's Financial Lives Survey in, in part as well. And that's a really rich set of data, but it's not run particularly regularly. So what we've Oxford Economics have done with their expertise is to kind of fast forward the data from when it was last available to now, and then look to, at what might happen in the next 12 months as well. So what, we, what we've seen is actually there's a, through lockdown, there was a big growth in resilience, but it almost entirely came from people having saved more because they couldn't go out. Now, that, that wasn't equal across the population. What you saw was that, as you can imagine, higher income households who've got more of their money spent on discretionary items rather than on the essentials were able to squirrel money away. They all of a sudden had a much more, much greater resilience in that rainy day savings pillar. And as a result, that sort of dragged up overall financial resilience during that period. And what we anticipate is that actually, as we have some sense of normality returning, what you'd expect to see is some of that spending come out plus inflation starting to bite on households, you're going to see some of those gains given up, particularly around the amount people have squirreled away to have that emergency savings fund. And also, you know, with the best one in the world, we're less worried about the people at the, the right-hand end of the chart. It's the people at the left-hand end, the people who've got less disposable income to start with, who probably suffered more through the pandemic, definitely suffered more through the pandemic than the people, as you say, who continue to enjoy good income and just spent less money. So the granularity within that's really important as well, isn't it? It is really important. I, but I think this is quite an important point for the whole kind of discussion around financial resilience, because there are certain groups, particularly at the lower income end, who probably are not going to be engaging to the same extent with financial services as the rest of the population. And their financial resilience is going to be very much dependent on the shape of the benefit system and what ways there are to, to solve some of the issues they may, may be facing. As you all know, Tom, though, there's a big group of people who perhaps do have the ability to interact with financial services and probably have got the ability, at least from a, from a monetary perspective, to start to make themselves more resilient, but lack that knowledge to do so. So Whilst that group, because they've got a little bit more money, you're probably not, you're less worried about them from a policy perspective. Actually, 
the ability to make them financially resilient probably rests more on the industry and for organisations like MAPS to try and help educate and, and help people take control of their own financial future. And that was one of the things I liked about the, the barometer work was you actually, through those pages, you'd already started to build out content around, so here's how you can deal with debt. You know, here's some links to some debt advice charities. Here's a link to, to the money and pension service on the, on the protection side and so on. And here's ways you can save for a rainy day. And obviously there are areas in there where Hargreaves Lansdowne might have a commercial interest in people engaging with the solutions, but it didn't feel as if that was the agenda here because a lot of it isn't about just product flogging. It's about this is how you build your own financial resilience and it'd be really good to see that develop further in the future. Yeah, absolutely. And that's completely deliberate. You know, we're not experts in controlling debt. You know, we can help people with around the budgeting decisions, but where people are in problem debt, that's not our area of expertise. So we have been sort of pushing people out to get more information from relevant sources there. So step change in particular is where we've we've pushed people to get more information if they're concerned. And particularly, again, around protection. So we can advise on protection policies, but actually we've also pointed people to more content, which is going to be useful for them, particularly for the, the Money Helper website. So, yeah, that was a deliberate in the design. Uh, you see this as, just thinking back to the way you framed this when we first started talking earlier on, do you see this as an alternative to financial advice? Because that's kind of how you were talking about it. Or is this actually a precursor to financial advice for some people that they do this now and then in five or 10 years time, they actually find themselves in a position where they do want to talk to an advisor? I don't think it's a, a replacement for financial advice. So look, my view, having been an advisor, is that, and I think you know, when I speak to advisors who, who are sort of active in the industry, the real skill of a financial advisor is helping people understand the issues that they don't even know they have. So it's almost the soft skills around everything. But the problem is, unless someone's going to go and engage with that process, they don't get the value there. And all of the work that we've done in looking at when people take financial advice, there's two massive catalysts, which is when the amount of money that they're dealing with is so large that if they make mistakes, it's going to be almost impossible for them to recover. So it's, the amount of money is kind of seismic in their, in their life. The other key catalyst is when the issues that they're dealing with are, for them, or the perception is that they're, they're too complex. Now, for me, that just screams retirement because you've got peak assets at that point. And at retirement, it's not that I don't think people can navigate those decisions, but you've got loads of new things to consider when it comes to retirement that even if you were confident managing your money up until that point you might not have been thinking through before so I don't think it takes away the need for financial advice at all but if we can help empower those people to be more confident and have built a sounder financial resilience by the time they get to the point where they might need financial advice then I think that's just a, a benefit all round. And to the point you're making there, I was also really interested to see that the average age of Hargreaves Lansdowne's platform users has dropped quite significantly, 54 in 2012 and now 47 in 2020. That's quite a shift. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, that's a, a trend that's been underway for a long time. So I think it's easy to look at lockdown and look at this sort of new generation of investors that you see sort of often flagged in the media as being that's where everything's coming from. But there's, you know, as you know, Tom, there's you know significant changes to the wider saving and investing landscape. So we're all investors by virtue of being members of our workplace pension. And I think all that we're seeing is just a recognition that, that it's dawning on 
people that actually it's they have their own responsibility for having enough money to to finish work and i think that's why you're seeing young people who are younger and younger starting to grips get to grips with their financial future yeah there are an interesting side effect of that from a commercial point of view for businesses like harvey's lansdowne and others is that you then potentially see a dilution of the average client asset portfolio size that you know there's as you start to deal with more young people which is great you know we get them earlier we help them build up their pots but it means we're dealing with people who have smaller pots to start with we're not just dealing with the wealthy 60 somethings yeah absolutely and i think you know speaking from a i guess from a hargreaves anzam perspective we've always aimed to make all of our products very accessible so min- the minimum savings levels for example have always been very low you know, even though we were perhaps serving a population who didn't necessarily need them because it was important. not fixed fees either. So you, know, you can come in at £20 a month and you're just paying a percentage and you're getting yeah. really pretty good value for money. Sure. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Just before we move on from the barometer, there's a couple of things that struck me. I was really interested to see self-employed significantly less resilient than the employed. But actually, it turns out the best way to have financial resilience is to be on a high income, a baby boomer living in the southeast. And if you tick those boxes, you're just like, you're fine. We don't need to worry about you. But on the self-employed, I was also really interested to hear Guy Opperman talking the other day about this HMRC trial to do an auto-enrolment scheme through people's tax returns, which I thought HMRC had just like poured cold water on. But apparently they are actually looking to go ahead with that. And that, that potentially is quite a significant development for the self-employed. Yeah, it is. It is. And I, I think the interesting thing for us within this, because actually the pillar of our barometer where the self-employed really lagged was, or certainly the indicator was around pension savings. Now, you know, that's not new. We know that the self-employed generally shun pensions or certainly basic rate taxpayers who are self-employed shun pensions. I think higher rate taxpayers, they, they tend to sort of use they do tend to use pensions for their saving. Now, I think what's interesting here is that we found whilst the self-employed tend to shun pensions, they did tend to have, they were more likely to have other assets when it came to retirement. And they were also more likely to be homeowners when it came to retirement. So when we looked at measuring later life, we didn't want to focus just on pensions because we know that if you have your own house, you've got more control of your outgoings moving forward, and you also have the ability to downsize. And obviously, pension is one way to fund your retirement, but your other assets can be used as well. So in focusing on those three areas, what we found was, okay, self-employed really didn't connect with pensions at all, and they were under-saving there, but actually they were slightly more likely to be to have their own home, to be saving elsewhere and obviously that does kind of give an extra strength to their resilience for later life saving as well on your point around hmrc and automatically enrolling i mean i you know again for me it's whether you go the whole hog and automatically enroll or whether you're just nudging to get the right information exactly and i think you know ultimately i mean i i've i've always thought that you know that is a key touch point for the self-employed i guess the question for me is to what extent are the self-employed engaging in a way that isn't anything other than just compliance with the tax burden at that point? So for me, it's kind of more about how making tax digital makes this more achievable. I, th- I think it's probably, you might see that happen. My big bugbear around this is that for the self-employed, a LISA is yep. a more efficient way to if save than a pension. So if you're trying to enrol people into a pension, well, really, and I guess this is, you know, you, this is a nudge, this is like a, a soft nudge only, it's not like auto-enrolment, but if you have a default for something, it really needs to be the best for most people that are going to go through that. 
And I think arguably for the self-employed, a LISA, where possible, is a better product than a pension, certainly if you're a basic rate taxpayer. So I think there's some things to work through, but it's, it's certainly a step in the right direction, I think. You make a really good point there, and that was one of the frustrations of uh, George Osborne's pension tax review in 2015-2016, was he came up with this fudge answer that, that had some merit, but then kind of didn't really follow through on it and left us with this muddled landscape where you've got ISAs and LISAs and pensions, and we still have to deal with all the muddle of tax relief. But if we start down that road, we'll be here all day. So I'm really interested in bridging this engagement gap, which is some of what we've talked about already. But I've just come across a couple of businesses of late. One is Money Alive, and another one is Guide with two eyes. Perhaps one of them is silent. Anyway, Guide. So they're doing really interesting stuff in doing non-advised kind of engagement tools and tutorials and you know guidance packs for people who are contemplating doing a DB transfer. Well, just spend five minutes watching this video and you'll understand the dynamics better and give you some stuff to think about. Or you'll think about retiring. And so here's a tool that will just help you walk through some basic questions around, can I afford to retire? And what does my income projection look like? So it's not personalized advice, but it's sort of taking you in a direction that is kind of meaningful and useful for you. And when we had the pharma review back in, when was it, 2015, I was pretty frustrated with the outcome from that. I felt like it was a bit of a missed opportunity. There weren't the kind of game-changing moments in terms of the advice guidance boundary at the time that would just allow the industry to go out and deliver solutions to the masses. But I look at those businesses now, and I look at also, to be fair, some of the regulatory interventions around some of the defaults, and we'll come on to those. But it feels like that gap's starting to get filled, and this also builds perhaps on some of the resilience work that you guys have been doing. But the industry is now starting to actually roll out useful solutions to the masses. Well, yeah, I think that's true. For me, and this is something you've had, well, I think we've had for a long time whilst post-pension freedom, is there's this been just almost this constant criticism of the industry that there hasn't been innovation. And I think that's quite harsh. And the reason I think it's quite harsh is because I think people see innovation as a shiny new product. And I don't actually think that's where the innovation is going to come from. I think the innovation is going to come in information delivery. And I think that's where there is a massive ability to improve where the industry is at the moment. And I know there are loads of firms that are working on doing exactly that. So to kind of answer your question, yes, I think there are firms sort of dropping into this space to try and help. I think though you've got a slight issue. There's You can deliver some great financial education which will help people's understanding for sure. But what we really need to be measuring is not how attractive the package looks, it's whether it goes on to deliver change for that individual. So if you take that into a workplace pension setting, Tom, what we're looking at is if you've helped someone to understand some of this information, have they gone on to increase their contribution? Have they reconsidered Which whether... it's the game-changing metric, isn't it? You know, everything else kind of pales a bit in significance. You know, if you want to really shift the dial, you've got to put more money in, right? Massively, massively. And I think, I think this is the... I guess some of my frustration is the industry, to a certain extent, doesn't help itself because we can talk about engagement and we talk about look at what we're offering, how great it is, when we're actually, what we need to do is look at what it's delivering, not what we're actually, not what we're providing. That's just a way of delivering that change. What's really important is whether you're driving that change and whether you're getting to people to pay in more or to consolidate pensions or to, to check their account online or to put in place a, a death nomination. So I think there's all of this stuff, I think, is really important. Again, you know, on your point around the frustrations of pharma. So I think, you know, there are loads of firms that are providing interactive content to help. 
But the difficulty is in personalizing that. And actually, I think the big win in terms of personalization isn't in adding more content in, it's in taking out the content which isn't relevant. Because if you take away that cognitive load when people are making decisions, so they're only dealing with the stuff that's really important at that point, you're going to get better decision making, you're going to get people who are more confident with what they're doing. And I think that's really important. Now that, a lot of that, is not possible with the current advice guidance boundary is drawn. That doesn't mean that there's not a lot of improvements that can happen in the industry already. But I think if you really want to change the game, that's... What are you saying? Simple statements? Simpler annual statements won't do it on their own? Simpler annual statements are, are, are decent in their own right. There's a lot to be excited about in terms of simple delivery, like helping people to understand. And the fact that those have been user-tested so heavily to make sure that actually what you're showing people, they actually understand, that is a real positive. Yeah. I think some of the problems around simpler annual statements is just assuming that because you send out a simpler annual statement, yeah. that's going to get the outcome that you need. And I think that from our perspective, we don't really tend to find that people engage with those statements because they engage with us far more heavily online. They can log in whenever they want. So why would they want a, a sort of very static valuation? And I get some of the idea around having that statement season so that everyone gets their their statements land at the same point in time. But I just think that you've got to do more. It's got to be more. You can't. There needs to be direction. People need to know what they have to do off the back of getting that statement. It's not enough just to, to have the information. They need to kind of a bit of direction of how to join the dots and how they can improve their position. Yeah, yeah. And I thought, again, I'm, I'm going to say something nice about Hargreaves Lansdowne, so I apologise to anyone who's listening. Other platforms are available. I really liked some of the stuff that HL did around the workplace. And, you know, you mentioned being able to go in and do a death benefit nomination online. You know, you don't actually have to fill in a form and send it off to anyone, you know, to talk to anyone. It's literally a five-minute job once you've logged into your site. I think that kind of stuff's really good. And then, you know, the hard work to, to keep nudging scheme members and say, have you done this yet? Have you done this yet? You know, this is where you go. Here's the link. And I thought that that's really good. And you talked about the contribution rates and, you know, making a choice or at least thinking about your investment choices, even if you don't then change them, at least go and consider them and is it right for you? But Hargreaves Lansdowne's membership is perhaps a little different to a lot of the rest of the population. So you know, can you replicate that across the, the 20 million people who've now been auto-enrolled? So I think the work that we did on in the workplace space to measure engagement, I think the first thing to draw attention to is that it is within the workplace environment. Our direct consumers, the consumers that come to us, they're already quite confident in terms of what they want to do and they want to transact on, on the HL platform. Yeah, I mean, if we were looking at that to try and compare to the a normal person within a workplace pension just trying to, to get to grips with their savings, that, you know, they're not, uh, there is no real read across there. But our workplace grouping, I guess, we've got a whole load of people who've not chosen Hargreaves Lansdowne. They've been thrown into a pension scheme with HL because their employer's chosen Hargreaves Lansdowne. And I think for me... Broadly, that population of people can be educated, they can be helped. It's just a case of how you, you connect those messages. So I also think kind of here, what's really important is the principles that you're trying to drive. So what are the underlying actions that you're trying to get people to do? And then you, you worry about the messaging that's appropriate for those groupings thereafter. So for us, there might be messages that we do that are unique to our client base within Hargreaves Lansdowne, but other firms who look after other workforces and their workplace pensions might try a different approach. But if you're trying to drive the same better outcomes for clients, that's kind of really what matters. So that again, it comes down to the delivery is what we should be innovating. 
that's what we should be working out how you can best sort of improve the outcomes that clients are going to get from their pensions the key thing is that we're measuring the right things in the first place i guess yeah yeah and you know i've spoken before about the statement season and you know the same principle there you know what, what is it you're actually trying to achieve and then work back from there and how you're going to measure it and then work back from there to okay so what is it that's going to make the difference here is it sending out several millions of pieces of paper in a week or is there a better way to engage with people yeah exactly and i think one of the things that i think is really interesting about that like if it were down to me i think i'd be looking at this and saying well look if we're going to do a an engagement season for people with with their pensions at one point during the year what do you really want them to do well you probably want them to consider whether they can afford to increase their contributions you certainly want them going back to their employer to see if they'll match further contributions i mean that's you know really a, a very strong driver that you want you want to position people towards you want them to understand that their pensions invested i think even if they you know we're not necessarily trying to force them to change their investments or encouraging them to change it's just a case of be aware of where you're invested certainly if you're trying to drive awareness of esg considerations you're not going to do that unless people actually understand they're invested i think there's an important point about making sure they've got the ability to log on to their pensions so that they can take control of that themselves moving forward. I'm really interested in the death benefit one, though, because actually, for me, I think there's kind of almost this invisible blocker that people don't really know where their pension money goes. It kind of goes into the ether. So actually, what, what does happen if I die? And actually, if you clarify that, actually, if you die, that money goes to your family, here's how you can be slightly more specific in terms of giving your intention of where that wants to go. Do we then sort of shift the behaviour of individuals to say, well, actually, now I know that it doesn't just die with me, I might be prepared to put a bit more money in myself. I think there's an interesting point around that, which I, yeah. you know, is one perhaps to explore further. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I still have misgivings about the current death benefits and the way those rules were, were formulated and the fact that you know, for wealthier investors, you're actually disincentivized from drawing on your pension pot, you know, run everything else down first because you can pass your pension on in a very tax privileged way which i think is a bit daft so but you know there's, there's a lot to dislike about the way the pension tax system works so again if we start down that road we'll probably never get out again that's a separate podcast okay. for sure yeah. yeah so i mean just kind of moving on to the way the regulator its role in guiding people and i was talking to ian costain a couple of weeks ago about the retirement pathways we're coming up to the first year review and I'm getting so many mixed messages about this. You know, some people say, oh, actually, yeah, lots of people have used them and they've been pretty successful. Other people saying no one's used them or, you know, some of our pathways have literally been used by no customers so far. And the whole thing was a bit prescriptive and not very effective. But, you know, it feels like the regulator has just said, OK, this is a solution and we're going to use it again. And now we're looking at things like non-workplace pensions and we might start building in some defaults there as well. So... I'd be interested in your thoughts around all of that and how you see it from where you're sitting. Yeah, so look, people need help with making investment decisions. That, there's absolutely no doubt around that. And so the spirit of those retirement pathways is probably quite sensible. I think the issue that you have is that essentially the FCA has dictated what the choice architecture should look like. Mm. So if you want a perfect way of killing innovation, it's to do that. Because and they were surprisingly reluctant to listen to any kind of feedback on that one, weren't they? Yeah, I guess the, the, from their perspective, they've got a perceived problem coming down the tracks and, you know, it's important to try and solve that. And so I can kind of understand maybe why they, they sort of 
went with that approach. And, you know, and this is to your point, Tom, you're sort of saying, well, look, some people are telling me that they're really well, well used, these pathways. Others are saying they're, they're not. Now, our experience is they're not being heavily used. And that's kind of consistent with what I guess you'd expect an engaged consumer audience might do. Now, that doesn't mean that it isn't useful to have as an option for people. But also there's this, I guess, you know, some of my frustration around this is not only is, is the, the choice architecture being defined, it's been injected at a specific point. Now, all of our research shows that people are not really making a retirement decision until they start drawing income from their pension. Yep. So what we're doing here is we're forcing them into investment decisions when they're actually still in growth mode in their pension because all they're looking to do is to take a tax-free lump sum. And I'd also argue the time to shop around for your pension provider is either before you start to think about drawing from your pension, so kind of four or five years before, consolidate all your pensions, make sure your investment strategy is aligned to what you're going to do in the run into retirement, or it's after, is at the point when you start drawing an income, because at that point you know a little bit more about what you're what, what the future is going to hold. I think at the point, shopping around at the point of taking the tax-free cash, well, to be honest, all you want to do is take a lump sum from the plan at that point. So again, I, I, for me, it's just a bit being sort of told where to position these interventions and exactly how to frame them when many, many providers have a very, very good understanding of client behaviour, I think is difficult. So if you look now at where we are with the non-workplace pensions work that the FCA is doing, so this is broadly looking at putting in place default funds for non-workplace pensions like like SIPs and also putting in nudges around the amount of cash that people hold and sort of encouraging them to invest. What they've done there is to, to not be cluttered at all in terms of the architecture. What they're doing is saying, you have to point to a fund, but it's still the individual's choice. It's not a case that you sort of fall into this if you make other decisions. So I think because they've been far less prescriptive this time round, I think that, I actually think that's a really sort of sensible shift to help people who might otherwise struggle with making investment decisions. And do you think they should have done the same thing with retirement pathways? Yeah, I think so. And I think it's easy now because they've had all the feedback from the retirement pathways and maybe this is kind of a almost revisiting this with a fresh set of eyes. But for me, that would have been more sensible because it allows firms to innovate and display this as best suits. So we found it was quite hard to get clients to understand what the pathways were because the clients within Harkley's Landsland are already quite clear on what they want to do. And so it's kind of a bit of an alien concept. And do you see what I mean? So I think it's that you're trying to apply a choice architecture that's consistent across all firms in the market when we know not all firms in the market serve the same types of clients. So I think that's kind of the issue, really. Yeah, interesting. So do you have any sympathy with the suggestion that we should actually just decouple the tax-free cash from the rest of the retirement pot altogether? I mean, to be honest, it's a horror show to implement. So I don't think that's the route that they should go down. I also don't think it's necessary. So we've actually done this within our drawdown journey at Hargreaves Lansdowne. So what we found when we were extensively user testing our application process for drawdown is that, well, we already knew most people were only taking the tax-free lump sum. But like most, we were sort of getting people to consider both the lump sum and the income decision all at the same time. So what became apparent to us is that we were just overloading choice and decision-making necessity on people when actually all they wanted was their lump sum. So what we did was to split those out into take the tax-free cash, then draw the income, you know, take those two separate decisions when they're right for you. And 
what that allows you to do is to place more emphasis on that whole tax-free cash decision at the outset. So what we found is previously we had something like three in 10 of our clients taking partial drawdown, so meaning that they're accessing their lump sum more tax efficiently. And that has jumped to six in 10 after we've decoupled that journey. So this is kind of what I was, when I alluded to earlier, when we were talking about taking away some of the decisions that aren't necessary and not overwhelming people at the point of making those decisions. I think that's a prime example of how doing that actually can lead people to getting a better outcome for them and their money. You know offhand what the sort of average age of people first accessing the pension pots through Hargreaves Lansdowne is? I didn't warn you I was going to ask you this question. No, you didn't. So, okay you And as a result, I'm unprepared. So. <laughs> no, but it's, I mean, as you can imagine, it's in not dissimilar to the rest of the market. If you look at the FCA's stats on this, it tends to be on the younger side. They'll access their money and then they'll come on to that income decision at a later date. Yeah, yeah. Okay, look, last question I wanted to touch on with you because, again, it's been causing some waves is what your take is around the FCA's solution to kind of doing the right thing by your customer and this proposal to introduce the consumer duty, which they seem to be going full speed ahead on, and which I guess for organisations like Hargreaves Lansdowne is probably kind of more pertinent than it might be for some others, given, you know, your your prominence in the marketplace and the way you deal with your customers and, you know, that obligation to, to kind of look after your customers. So I just wonder if you had any thoughts around that. Well, broadly, quick answer. I love it. I think it's a really positive development. I think the issue really is then, I mean, what we're talking about when we talk about consumer duty, but what we're talking about is a shift to outcomes-based yeah regulation. That's essentially what we're talking about. And I completely agree with that. That from the way that we think about that within Hargreaves Lansdowne, the way when we're thinking about, okay, how can we improve the decision making here? How can we make sure that that when someone's coming to make that choice, that we're driving them to try and try and deliver that in the best way possible. That's completely aligned with how we're thinking about investment journey design in terms of planning decisions, all of those kind of things. I guess for me, the exciting part of the consumer duty isn't really the consumer duty itself. It's to what extent does it allow changes to the rules which currently act as a barrier to mm. actually aligning with the with what the consumer duty is asking us for? So if you look in the consumer duty, particularly around the, the bits around communication, mm. it's trying to alert clients in advance that they might have where there's you know potential detriment where you can sort of foresee that. Well, actually, you know, we'd love to be able to do that, but we think we're we're held back. So I think it's really exciting, but I think the issue is just how can that be brought in in a way that works for the industry? Because I think in principle, outcomes-based regulation is, is a great thing. It's just how you police that. And, you know, there's some interesting, I think there's some interesting things to kind of work through. So for example, let's say we built a, a journey where you take clients through it and 70% of them are, are better off 20% are exactly the same and 10% are worse off. So you're, for the most people, you're delivering a better outcome. But there's a group who, because they've kind of interacted in a way that we weren't expecting, they, they maybe don't have such a good outcome. So what's the regulatory position on that? You know, And I think there's lots of, I guess, lots of knotty questions which kind of need to be worked through. But I do think it has the potential to really shift the way that the whole industry approaches looking after their clients. Well, that sounds like a positive note to finish up. So, fantastic. Hargreaves <laughs> <laughs> Lansdowne loves the regulatory intervention. That's yeah, that's right, isn't it? Nathan. Nice one to finish on. Nathan, thanks for talking to me. It's been fantastic. Thank you. Pleasure, Tom. Thank you. 
I hope you enjoyed this conversation. If you did, then do please consider leaving a positive review and maybe even subscribing for future episodes. The sound engineer was Ross Burns. Thank you for listening.